Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Stop Pointing Fingers. All right, well, how many of you guys were with us last week when we talked uh, about chapter one? Let me just see your hand if you were with us last week. Okay, some of you were not here. And so last week, as we went through Romans chapter one, we saw why we live in such a dark world. Okay, I got up this morning, I clicked on my little Fox News app, and I began to read the headlines. It was all bad news, all of it. So why in the world do we live in such a dark world? Here's why. It's because man has made a choice. Man has made a choice to suppress the truth about God. And so remember from last week, God gave man two witnesses to prove his existence. He gave man the witness of the conscience within, and he gave man the witness of creation without. But man decided to turn his back on God. Man said no to the witness of his conscience within. Man said no to the witness of creation without, and it was all downhill from there. And so what happened was that man decided to turn his back on the true God of creation, And he turned to idolatry. You remember this? The downward spiral of man. He turned from the true God of creation. He turned to idols or images. And man worshiped the creature instead of the creator. After a while, because, you know, God is a patient God. (laughs) But, but, But listen, even God's patience has limits. And we saw last week that finally God said, okay, have it your way. And he gave man over to indulge the lusts of their heart. That led man into a downward spiral that ended up in man's self-destruction. And ladies and gentlemen, that and only that is the reason we live in such a dark world. It's not God's fault. It's our fault. When you got up this morning and you read the headlines, it's not God's fault. It's absolutely man's fault. Now, as we begin chapter 2, I want to give you the first point so you understand where Paul is going. Okay? And so in chapter 1, Paul described the error of who? Help me out. The unrighteous. Now in chapter 2, Paul's going to describe the error of who? The self-righteous. Leave it to the heart of man to misinterpret Paul's words in Romans 1. When self-righteous people read Romans chapter 1, when they read about sinful man turning his back on God, this is how they often react. They're reading it and they say, right on, Paul, you get them. Those murderers, those idolaters, those immoral people, Right, Those violent people, they're the reason. They're the reason this world is so messed up. And so self-righteous people read chapter 1, and they stand on their moral high ground, and they point their fingers at everybody else for why the world is so messed up. And they stand on their moral high ground because they really believe in their mind and heart that they are up here, and everybody else is down here, that they are better than others. And I love Paul 
Because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul knew that some people would misinterpret everything that he wrote in chapter 1. And so in chapter 2, Paul gives a wake-up call to the self-righteous. In chapter 2, Paul drops a bomb, a total bomb, like an atomic bomb on people who think that they're better than others. Okay, so let's dive in. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, what's the next word? You. (laughs) Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge. For whenever, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. But we know, verse 2, that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Here's your, first, here's your next point. Self-righteous people maximize the sins of others, but they minimize their own sins. Some of you are thinking, that's not me. Oh, really? Then why is it when that person flew by you on I-95, you said under your breath, where's the police when you need them? That's ridiculous. But then when you see the blue lights behind you and you get pulled over, it's, man, these cops are just trying to meet their quota. (laughs) You maximize the sins of others, but you minimize your own sins. And so, hey, when we think about this this whole idea, um, people, self-righteous people, here's what they do. They point their fingers at others. You're a murderer. You deserve what you get. You're an idolater, you're immoral, you deserve what you get. You know, um, you're homosexual, you deserve what you get. You're a violent person, you deserve what you get. Somebody needs to ask the self-righteous person, what about what you deserve to get? Right? Because Paul didn't just name a few sins. He didn't just say murder, idolatry, immorality, and uh, violence. No. He listed, remember this from last week? Over 20 different sins, and all of them, by the way, all of us are guilty of at least one, two, three, or more of those sins, right? This is the the argument. This is the flow that Paul is trying to set here in Romans so we don't get off into religion or a religious attitude or thinking that we're better than others. The list in Romans chapter 1 is over 20 different sins, and they include not just sins of the flesh, But they include sins of the heart, sins like envy and boasting and unforgiveness. Those are in the list. Okay, so envy. Can can we all just take some, some spiritual personal inventory here? How many of you guys have ever been jealous? Don't raise your hand. God sees your hand in your heart, okay? How many of you guys have ever been jealous of someone else's success? How many of us have ever boasted about our accomplishments in life? How many of us have ever 
held a grudge against somebody? Right? Here's the answer. All of us. We may not always be guilty of sins of the flesh, right? We're good church people. But all of us are guilty, absolutely, of sins of the heart, okay? But the self-righteous would rather maximize the sins of others and minimize their own sins. Do you guys remember the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15? I had my devotions yesterday, and I read this parable. It absolutely blows me away every time I read it. The love of this father. And so in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son, okay, after the prodigal son wasted his inheritance on wild living and prostitutes. You can go back and read the, 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 the parable later, but he blew his inheritance on wild living, party life, and prostitutes, okay? So after he did that, he found himself lonely and broke. By the way, if you decide to go down a path of wild living, that path will always end in you being lonely and you being broke. It's just what happens. Okay, and so things got so bad for this young man, he lost all his money, he didn't have a penny, two pennies to rub together, and so he got a job as a hired hand at a pig farm. Things got to be pretty bad if you become a hired hand at a pig farm. And apparently the job didn't pay very much because this guy found himself so hungry Jesus said he was so hungry, he wished he could eat the same food the pigs ate. In other words, he, he was like, mmm, slop, that looks good, right? That's how bad this guy got, things in his life. And so finally, listen, he came to his senses. It's like, what am I doing with my life? And here's what he did. As you continue on in the parable, he left the pig pen, and he started walking back to the father's house. That's repentance, a change of mind that ultimately manifests itself in a change of life. That's what he did. And as he's a far away, a still a far distance away from his father's house, there's the father standing on the hill, hoping, wishing, praying his son would come home. And he saw him like a little dot on the horizon, and the dot got bigger and bigger. Could it be? Could it be? Yes. It's my son. And this father took off running for his boy. Now, most dads, when they saw their prodigal son, would have run the other way. Oh, gosh, here comes trouble, right? But this guy, and you, you if you were a self-respecting person in this culture, you didn't run for anybody. He runs towards his son. He hugs his son. He kisses his son. His son, with a repentant heart, says, Dad, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. And the, and the dad's like, hey, servants, hey, get him the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. We're going to celebrate because my son, who was lost, has now been found. He was so excited, right? So he throws his son a big party with music and dancing, and the repentant Son received grace. Listen, the repentant son. Some people want grace, but they also want their sin. It doesn't work that way. If he wouldn't have repented, he still would have been in the slime of the pig <laughs> slop, right? But no, he repents, and the father gives him grace. He throws a party. There's music, and there's dancing. But here's the problem. Here's the point of why I bring this up this morning. 
the younger brother had an older brother. And the older brother in the parable says he comes out, comes in from the field. He's probably been working all day. By the way, self-righteous people usually are very hard workers. They're very disciplined. Their lives are all intact. You've got to be careful if that's you, because listen, if that's you, it's so easy to compare yourself to people whose lives aren't intact and feel good about yourself. The older brother comes in from the field and he hears music. He hears the party. He's like, what's going on? A servant comes out and, and tells him, hey, your brother has come home and your dad has thrown him a big party. And the elder brother got ticked off. He is so angry. He's so angry at his dad. He's more angry at his little brother. And he refused to go in and join the celebration. So finally the father comes outside. And the father's like, what's up, son? What's going on? And the father was met with some serious, self-righteous attitude. The elder brother says, father, I've been, I, listen to the eyes, I've been serving you for years. I've always obeyed you. I've always done what you've asked me to do. You've never thrown a party for me. Okay, what do you call that? You call that boasting. I, I, I. And then he says, but as soon as this immoral son of yours came home, this immoral son of yours who's blown his inheritance on wild living and prostitutes, you throw a party for him? What do you call that? You call that envy, right? The father was willing to forgive the younger son, but the elder brother was not willing to forgive. What do you call that? You call that unforgiveness, right? So, so what's going on here? What's my point? My point is that the elder brother had no problem maximizing the sins of his brother and minimizing his own sins, but he was just as guilty of sin as his little brother, he may not have been guilty of sins of the flesh, but he was absolutely guilty of sins of the heart, sins like envy, sins like boasting, sins like pride and bitterness and unforgiveness. And the father comes out and he says, son, hey, it's right that we're celebrating because your little brother was lost and now he's found. He was dead and now he's alive, right? But the elder brother didn't get it. Why? Because self-righteous people don't get grace. They don't get the gospel. And that's why we're going to see by the end of the sermon that self-righteous people are standing at the great white throne judgment. Because they think they're good enough. And they make statements like, I don't need to ask God for forgiveness. I'm a good person. No, you're a self-righteous person. And without Jesus, you're on your way to hell. Right? we got to understand the true gospel. Calvary Poor St. Lucie is not about come in here and learn how to be a self-righteous person so you can think you're better than everybody else in society. That's not our message at all. That's the message of religion. The message that we have is the message of grace. Like I said last week, we were once a mess. We were once up to here in sin, and God reached down and he saved us, and he'll save you too if you'll turn to him. That's our message. That's our message. So self-righteous people stand on their moral high ground. They point their finger at other people, and they forget, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Before I 
go to the next point, let me just ask you again, please take spiritual inventory. Do you maximize the sins of others but minimize your own sins? I used to do marriage counseling. <laughs> I don't do it very, any, very much or hardly at all anymore. But in my other church that sent us, my wife and I here, I, was, I did what Pastor Bob did. I was the care pastor, so I did a lot of marriage counseling. In all my years of marriage counseling, you know what I never saw? When a husband and wife come in and sit down, what I never saw was either the wife or the husband say, hey, before we even start, I just want to confess my own sins here. I want to share with you, Pastor, how I've blown it in this marriage. Never happened, not even one time. I'm talking about a lot of counseling in two different churches that I used to be a part of. Never heard it. You know what I always heard? He, 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 right? Or she, 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 she. Why? Because we love to maximize the sins of others and minimize our own sins. And so, hey, we're all, and that's the whole point in Paul's flow here. He's trying to get us all to understand that we're all sinners and we're all in need of grace. So before we point our fingers at others, we should learn to point our fingers at ourselves. There's something else self-righteous people do. Check it out on the screen. The self-righteous compare themselves to imperfect people instead of comparing themselves to God's perfect word. The self-righteous person, this is, this is the attitude. I don't get drunk. I don't do drugs. I don't sleep around. Right? And so compared to the alcoholic, I look pretty good. Compared to the druggie, I look pretty good. Compared to my younger brother who blew his money on prostitutes, I look pretty good. You see how that works? When we compare ourselves to imperfect people, we always look pretty good. You got to be careful. Jesus had another parable for people with this attitude. You don't have to turn there, but in Luke chapter 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember this? Jesus said a Pharisee and a tax collector went to the temple to pray. And so the Pharisee stands there all self-righteous, and this is his prayer, and I quote, God... I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. You see, the, the prayer of the Pharisee was all about his self-righteousness. And so you know how far his prayer got? Like maybe that far. In fact, Jesus said he stood and prayed with himself. In other words... He was just talking to himself. God had nothing to do with his prayer. The tax collector, on the other hand, he's standing far away. He's not even looking up into heaven. He's beating his chest, and he says, and I quote, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. His prayer was not about his righteousness. His prayer was about God's mercy, and his prayer went straight up into the throne room of God, and Jesus said that the tax collector went back to his house justified, forgiven, but the Pharisee, he remained in his sins. 
The Pharisee felt really good about himself, right? Because he's comparing himself to the tax collector. And so he's feeling self-righteous. He's feeling good about himself. But he, the Pharisee, remained in his sins. So what's the measuring stick that we ought to use in order to judge ourselves? Is it imperfect people? Right? But isn't that what we always do? I hear conversations all the time where people are comparing themselves with other people to make themselves feel good about themselves. Ladies and gentlemen, let's not be known as a church like that. Right? Oh, those people down in Fort Pierce. Those thugs. We think we're so self-righteous and so, and so much better than them. Right? Or if it's, or it's another scenario, um, if you don't have a lot of money, oh, those snobs over in PGA. Right? It's always comparing ourselves to other people, and we always make ourselves feel better about ourselves. That's a sin of the heart, and it's just as bad as if you were tonight go out and blow your money on a prostitute. In God's eyes, it's all the same. And so what we have to do is we have to have a humble attitude. We have to have the attitude of the tax collector. And I love this. I'm going to read it. Every once in a while, God will help me write something, and I'll think, that is so good, okay? And because it comes from God, okay? Listen to this. When we compare ourselves to others, it's easy to become arrogant. But when we compare ourselves to God's word, it's hard not to be humble. Somebody should tweet that. Listen, I'll say it again. When we compare ourselves to others, it's easy to become arrogant. But when we compare ourselves to God's word, it's hard not to be humble. In this church, in this place, in this house, let's be known as a people that we don't compare ourselves to others. We compare ourselves to God's word. So we always stay in this place of, oh man, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And you know what? This doesn't attract anybody. But God be merciful to me, a sinner, that will attract people like a magnet. Look at verse 3. Is it like extra quiet in here? Or? <laughs> Again, verse 3. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you, you self-righteous person, will escape the judgment of God? Verse 4, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to what? Repentance. Next point, self-righteous people, not just unrighteous people, but self-righteous people also need to repent. People who compare themselves to others need to repent. Okay, what is repentance? Again, it's a change of mind. Metanoia in the Greek. It's all it means, a change of mind. But here's what we know. It's a change of mind that always manifests itself in a change of attitude and a change of life. Okay, and so we change our mind. What should it's, we, we stop thinking a certain way. If you guys are with me, can you say amen here? Listen, you stop thinking a certain way and you start thinking a certain way. So what should the self-righteous person stop thinking? He or she should stop comparing themselves with other imperfect people and start comparing themselves to God's word. What should a self-righteous person stop thinking? He should stop maximizing the sins of others and minimizing 
his own sins, and he should start realizing that all sin is offensive to God. It's a change of mind. It's repentance. Paul's saying, hey, self-righteous person there in, um, in, in verse 4, he's saying, God's been so good to you, so patient, so gracious. His goodness should lead you to repentance. But instead of that, self-righteous people, do you know what they do? They harden their hearts. And so they're going to have to endure verse 5. Please look at verse 5. But in accordance with, the, with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you, self-righteous person, are treasuring up for yourself what? Wrath. But I'm religious. Wrath. But I'm righteous. Wrath. You're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. He says, in accordance with the hardness of your heart. That word hardness, uh, the transliteration is sclerotis. It means stubborn. It means obstinate. That's how so many religious people are. Right? I'm up here. You're down there. I fear God. You don't. Obstinance, it's, it's, it's stubbornness. It's similar to our English word sclerosis, which means a hardening of the body tissues, or arteriosclerosis, which is a hardening of the arteries. Okay, so Paul obviously is not talking about the hardness of the physical heart. What he's doing is he's talking about the hardness of a spiritual heart. And as long as the self-righteous person hardens his heart and remains impenitent, then he's treasuring up for himself wrath. Okay, so what's the wrath in verse 5? The wrath in verse 5 of God is talking about the great white throne judgment. Okay, let me just read it to you from Revelation. Then I saw, John says, a great white throne with him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was, no, and there was found no place for them. That's all the people standing at this great white throne. And I saw the dead small and great, standing before God. It's not the annihilation of the wicked. When you die, you're not annihilated. All of us have an immortal soul. Our immortal soul either goes to heaven forever or it goes to hell forever. We all live on forever in one of two places. These people were dead, and now they're, they're alive. They're standing before God. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open. Mm, that's interesting. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead, listen, were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up their dead who were in it. Death and hell delivered up their dead who were in them. And they were judged, in case you didn't get it, get it the first time, according to their works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Later on, we find out in Revelation, it's a lake of fire where the beast and false prophet are, and they're tormented day and night forever and ever. That's not annihilation. They're alive forever. Okay? And so when you, when you understand this, it's, it's absolutely mind-boggling that self-righteous people are going to be present at the great white throne. Ladies and gentlemen, this is my point. It's not just the irreligious people that are at the great white throne judgment. It's religious people that are there too. 
It's not just unrighteous people that are standing at the great white throne judgment. It's self-righteous people too. It's people who went to church. It's people who thought they were better than others. It's, why are they going to be there? Here's why. Listen, because they think they're good enough to be accepted by God. And that's why they make statements like, I don't need to ask for forgiveness. I'm a good person. That's a self-righteous attitude, and it ends at the great white throne judgment. This is why we need Jesus. This is why we need God's mercy. This is why we need his grace. This is why all of us need to get off of our high horse and realize that everything above hell is grace. That should be our attitude. It says in verse 6, God, who will render to each one according to his what? Deeds or works, in case you didn't get it the first two times. Verse 7, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they get indignation and what? Wrath. Okay, verse 9, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. Verse 10, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone whose works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. And so on Judgment Day, if I could have your attention so you don't misunderstand this, on Judgment Day, God's judgment will be absolutely just. It will be according to our works, and he will show no partiality. According to verse 7, everybody look at verse 7, he will give eternal life to anybody who by patient continuance and doing good seeks glory, honor, and immortality. According to verse 8, anybody who's self-seeking they're going to get indignation and wrath, okay? Some people get so confused by this, and here's why they do it. Because they love to take verses out of the Bible and uh, interpret them out of their context. You've got to leave the verses in the context. You've got to interpret the verses by the chapter before, the chapter it's in, and the chapter afterwards. In fact, you've got to interpret these verses with the whole book of Romans in mind. So here's my question to you. Has anybody who's ever lived since Adam fit the bill of verse 7? Has anybody since Adam ever perfectly in their life with patience, continuance, and doing good sought for glory, honor, and immortality? The answer is, I'll, I'll give it to you from Paul in the next chapter. This is how we have to interpret verse 7. In the next chapter, Paul says, there's none righteous, no, not one. Paul himself says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so here's your last point. Our righteousness will never save us, which is why we need Christ's perfect righteousness. I love Romans. Amen. Romans has a way of humbling all of us before Almighty God. And by the way, there was... Um, one person who fit the bill of verse 7. There was one person who with patient continuance sought good his whole life, sought for glory and honor. 
His name is Jesus. Perfectly, his whole life, right? So listen, listen. It's not just the substitutionary death. It's the substitutionary life. Jesus lived the life you and I could not live. Then he died the death that you and I should have died. And that's why we, like the prodigal son, finally say, I'm sick of the pig slop. And we come to our senses with the help of the Holy Spirit. And we walk to the Father's house that he says, hey, your faith, here's how I'm going to respond, with grace. You now have my son's righteousness. His life is now counted as your life. And his death now forgives all your sins, past present, future. You're my son. You're my daughter. Come on home. It's all by grace. That's our God. That's our God. That's the gospel. Ladies and gentlemen, may we never compromise the gospel of grace. Amen? Amen. Amen. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.